0: Hello, and welcome to this special interview with vermicomposting aficionado Rhonda Sherman, author, researcher and director of the Compost Learning Lab at North Carolina State University. This episode is part of our Women of the Land series with Chelsea Green Publishing, in which we feature women who are fueled by their connection with the land to build businesses, garner movements, and share their stories. They're standing up for what they know works, and crafting a better future for us all. Rhonda Sherman has had a long and wide-spanning career in recycling, waste management, and since the mid-90s, vermicomposting. Her expertise has guided worm enthusiasts across the world in setting up their own businesses and projects. Rhonda's book, the Worm Farmers Handbook is an authoritative how to guide that demystifies the science and logistics of the fascinating process that is vermicomposting. Let's dig into the wild world of worms.
1: To start with, I just wanted to acknowledge that you've obviously had a really long career working with waste reduction, composting, and recycling. Um, And maybe you could tell us a little bit about about how you got started with vermicomposting in particular.
2: So I was hired by NC State, North Carolina State University in 1993 to um, help people to recycle because Mm -hmm. uh, laws had recently been passed saying you must recycle. And so I'm at a land grant university. And so people were calling the university saying, what do I do? And so it was households, businesses, and city and county offices saying, what do we do about recycling? One of the uh, fact sheets that I put together was called Worms Can Recycle Your Garbage. Mm-hmm. And it just took off. I mean, it was just a career changing moment for me. I never expected it. And then phone calls and emails were just pouring in Um, eventually from all over the world, saying we want to learn more about vermicomposting. And so I really had to shift what I was doing (laughs) just to answer popular demand. The worms require a moist environment just so they can breathe. So you, you need to have some kind of bedding for them to be in that's moist. And then you add food, wait till it's consumed, and then add more. It's pretty easy to do.
1: One of the first things you do talk about in your book is um, how vermicomposting is different to composting.
2: So with composting, the goal really is for your pile to heat up. So we call it thermophilic composting, combination of materials together with the right moisture and bulk density and the microorganisms in that pile will secrete enzymes and begin to degrade the organic material. But the activity of the microorganisms creates heat, which is a good thing because it accelerates the decomposition of the pile, but also if you reach high enough temperatures, it will kill pathogens and seeds. And so worms are not involved with that and sometimes people try to combine the two and they really should be totally separate things. (laughs) Um, They're separate processes. There are just so many scientific studies that have shown that vermicompost has a much higher benefit to soils and plants than compost does. Here in the United States, if um, a compost manufacturer sells a cubic yard of compost, they can sell it for about $30. Whereas if they try to sell a a vermicomposter, tries to sell a cubic yard of vermicompost or vermicast, they can sell it for $200 to $1,000 per cubic yard. Whoa. So a huge difference. (laughs) You'll have greater numbers and greater variety of microorganisms in vermicast. And it's because it doesn't go through a heating cycle. We call it cold composting. You know, it, it stays at, you want it to stay at ambient temperature. The sweet spot for vermicomposting is pretty much 70 degrees for microorganisms. And you also have plant growth hormones and humic and fulvic acids that are in the vermicast, which helps seeds to germinate more quickly The plants will grow bigger and stronger. They'll have better developed root systems. They'll have greater yield. You'll also have um, disease and pest resistance that is part of the vermicompost. And it has that effect on plants. And then the benefits for soil, it adds organic matter. um, It improves the soil structure. It increases the cation exchange capacity makes cultivation easier, helps the soil to absorb and retain water.
1: In some ways it sounds easy like oh yeah just get some worms and feed them not too much and keep them damp and you'll be fine but can it go really wrong?
2: There are, unfortunately there are many ways to accidentally kill the worms you know okay and, and that's why I um you know have over 25 years experience of um of writing and teaching about it in a way that is easy to understand like my worms can can recycle your garbage um, that publication still exists it's um, only five pages so mm-hmm. it's very you know it's a quick easy read Mm -hmm. though i encourage people to reread it a few times before they actually set up a worm bin although my book is about mid to large scale worm farming i encourage everyone to start with small scale so you want to take my worms can recycle your garbage it tells you how you very easily can set up a worm bin um, you can buy one online, but you can also just take a plastic container with a lid and uh, drill holes along the top sides of the bin mm-hmm. for air. And then, um, you know, put, fill it halfway with moist bedding, which could be shredded newspaper or shredded office paper. And uh, and then you add the, the worm. So if you Pay attention to (laughs) what I've written about, you'll be successful. And one thing I've really stressed for people is that um, when you're dealing with food waste, there's always the chance of attracting fruit flies. You Mm. know, they just kind of show up, right? Mm -hmm. But if you cover the food scraps, you know, this is where I encourage people to be. OCD you know obsessive (laughs) compulsive disorder (laughs) only this one little thing I just say cover the food scraps so that when you open your bin you can't see any food scraps you only see whatever your bedding is and you will not attract fruit flies.
1: Another thing I always think is interesting about compost is also like, you know, smell is quite a distinctive um, indicator of health. Is that the same with vermicompost? Yes.
2: Many people have created furniture that's a worm bin. People have a lovely coffee table and in their living room, but it also is a worm bin. And if you're doing things correctly, there won't be any odor whatsoever you have the lid on your worm bin and when you do open the lid it should just smell earthy like forest soil so it's great i mean i used to keep my worm bin in my well i used to keep it at my feet in my office under my desk i kept it at home in my bathroom um you know because there's the counter and then the um you know, there's a big empty space between the drawers. So, mm-hmm. it's a big place for a worm bin, you know?
1: And so, is there like, you talk quite a bit in amazing detail about how to feed the worms. Um, and so, I have two questions around that. One is like, you know, from a food waste perspective, is there anything you wouldn't put in your vermicom or your vermicompost pot?
2: Okay, so I would not put in um, meat, fish, dairy products bones and uh fat and grease because those could have uh, um those will produce an obnoxious odor but it will also attract carnivores so Mm. you know um rats (laughs) cats um raccoons all possums all sorts of things would be attracted to it you know i don't put dog or cat poo i don't put uh orange and citrus i don't put citrus peels and and parts into a worm into a small worm bin you can with a larger system like what i write about in my book
1: yeah
2: but in a smaller system it'll throw off the ph and make it acidic and then that can um cause red mites to proliferate and outcompete the worms.
1: How would you, or you know, how do you think about it? Say you're a dairy or a cattle farmer versus if you have a market garden or a wormery at home. You know, feeding the worms, you can take quite different approaches.
2: The uh, dairy manure is is really the number one feedstock fed to worms that I'm aware of throughout the world for wow. vermicomposting. So dairy manure is is a great feedstock for worms.
1: And also, I remember reading that actually the the outcome in terms of the the nutritional value um, of the vermicompost in terms of what you want to grow in it is actually quite different depending on what you feed the worms.
2: Yes, it's very different.
1: <laughs> I'm laughing because
2: it was hard to write about in the book. It's hard to explain to people, but. Um, yeah, if you, if you think about it, you know, that, that what you feed the worms and then what comes out the other end is going to be different. So if you fed them dairy manure or if you fed them food waste or say paper waste, then the vermicompost is going to have different nutrients and microorganisms and plants are going to respond differently to that.
1: Obviously, your book is focused on mid- to large-scale vermicomposting. Um, and so at that kind of scale, you know, how are worm bins integrated into different types of farm systems? And, and how difficult is it to, you know, if I'm a farmer and I wanted to make a usable amount for a farm scale, you know, how difficult is that?
2: So, so basically, you need one pound of worms per, per square foot mm-hmm. of surface area. So it's a matter of having enough worms for the feedstock, actually.
1: And so, do you do you know of any farms that produce all of their own vermicast um, to spread at like the farm scale?
2: So I mean, the the really great thing about vermicompost is that it's so potent that a little bit goes a really long way. Uh, you know, you really only need to use about 10%, 10 or 20% by volume of whatever your um, amendment you're adding to the soil needs to be vermicompost.
1: And in terms of, cause I, you do talk a bit about like vermicompost tea, um, in your, from your perspective, you know, do you think it's better to apply vermicompost direct, or it, can it be equally as effective to apply a tea or an extract? Um, if,
2: if it's brewed correctly, it, it could, um, be equally effective and, um, it's, it's nice if you can do both, you know, Mm -hmm. if you can initially plant it with, um, well, I mean, but you don't have to, I was going to say, it's nice if you can uh, initially plant with solid vermicompost and then, um, and then, uh, apply a, uh, foliar, spray Mm -hmm. or soil drench of vermicompost tea but Mm -hmm. they can be done independently you know yes so whatever you want to do but vermicompost tea and compost tea they it's still kind of a um, there are still a lot of um, disputes about it and you know because there are different ways of going about it and you know you can have non aerated or aerated, and people like to add different additives to it. And, um, and then uh, there's also the myth of uh, excess liquid coming out of a worm bin, and people calling it worm tea. That is totally incorrect. So you know, when I travel around the world, I try to point that out to people, because Basically, if you're managing a worm bin correctly, you will not have excess liquid coming out of the bottom. If you do have excess liquid, you should be reviewing your management processes to figure out why you're producing excess liquid, because you shouldn't be. But if you do produce that excess liquid, there could be all sorts of problems with it. um, Right. Because it's not supposed to be there to begin with. So... (laughs) I tell people, you know, just throw it out. Now to correctly make vermicompost tea or compost tea, you need to be very aware of pathogens and try to minimize the number of pathogens that would be in the tea. So it's really important to have clean equipment, clean water, um, good quality vermicompost or compost, and to not add sugars some people they like to add those things to vermica to the tea to increase the microbial numbers but the problem is there will always be uh, small numbers of pathogen um, pathogenic um, microbes mm-hmm. and so you're also increasing their numbers greatly if you add sugars to be on the safe side i just say don't add sugars
1: you mentioned that you covered some um, case studies in the book, which I found fascinating, really cool, um, like a great overview for many different countries. And I was wondering, uh, some you know, a few of them really caught my attention, like um, maybe you could talk a bit about the Green Organic Project in Afghanistan.
2: There's a woman, um, she and her husband, but, you know, so this is a woman-owned business in Kabul, Afghanistan, and she has the only... Um, woman-owned organic materials recycling facility and that has vermicomposting production. And so, um, you know, it, it's just great what they're doing. And and they're doing it on a large scale and they're doing it with the materials they have on hand, which is concrete blocks. <laughs> you know, they have access to concrete blocks. And so they've built... Um, Numerous uh, worm bins from concrete blocks.
1: How did you feel when they got in touch?
2: Oh, I was thrilled, you know, you know because in Afghanistan, you know, women have um, not had as many opportunities as men. And so she um, pitched a business plan to USAID um, uh, to uh, assistance in building Afghanistan by developing enterprise and so she got training and got grants and she and her husband have just worked very hard and uh, so we stay in touch by email and they're Facebook friends. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I uh, we put a little tweet out um, to our listeners to see if they had any questions for you. So. Um, I was wondering if I could ask you a few quick-fire questions from them. Okay, so how often should I feed my worms? Um, I have a small wormery in my community garden, and we currently feed primarily vegetable scraps.
2: Well, ideally, you would, you would only feed after your last feeding has disappeared. That's what's ideal. Um, you know, if you have lots If you have plenty of worms, well, I mean, really, no. In in any circumstance, you should wait until the food is gone.
1: Should I water the vermicompost? How do I check if the moisture is right?
2: You want your vermicom your worm bin to be, like if you're doing mid to large scale, you want it to be a gradient so that the top four inches would be about 80% moisture, which means that if you, if you took a handful of the organic material, you know, bedding, and squeezed it, you would get a few drops of water. That means about 80%. But you don't want the entire system to be 80%. The deeper it goes, you want it to be drier. The worms stay in that top four inches, and you want them to stay there. And you don't want to overwater the bin. And so it's a matter of when you set up the bin, you make sure there's plenty of moisture in the bedding. And then after that, you don't, um, you don't, you never pour water into your system. You only spritz it. Worms love moisture, they'll follow the moisture. So if you have a bunch of water coming out of your bin, your worms could follow it and they could exit your bin and <laughs> that's not good
1: <laughs> well that leads nicely on to the next question which is why are my worms crawling away
2: that's why <laughs> there are several reasons why they would uh crawl away um that's one of them that they're following water um and and also that can happen when it's raining you know if um if you have a big storm and there's a lot of water that um uh, that changes the barometric pressure and the worms tend to um, want to exit and uh, and follow the water you know and um, and so that's one reason but also if if you overfeed then it can produce alcohol and ammonia build up in the bin and um, that will make the worms want to leave um, if the conditions are too hot, too dry, too um, too wet, too cold, that can make them want to leave the bin. So in my, again, my free publication on my website called Worms Can Recycle Your Garbage, I have a troubleshooting guide. And it, um, so you can look at it and, you know, hey, this is happening with my bin. And then I tell you why and then how to remedy it.
1: Um, and finally what can I do to keep the worms, sorry, what can I do to keep the worms warm enough in the winter in the UK?
2: Okay. Um, it's actually easier to keep worms warm enough rather than to cool them down when it's super hot. So there are just so many, um, ways you can help keep them warm. And I talked about that a lot in the book, you know, I, I gave several suggestions, you know, but, um, which can include uh, using insulation, like household insulation, can be can surround your bin. Um, you can put hay bales around your bin, blankets. Um, you can use electrical devices, you know, like soil heating mat um, can be put on, you know,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, on top of the bedding in your bin, and um, just a number of things can be done.
1: I always end with one question, which is. Many of our listeners are from the small to medium-scale farming community. Um, And do you have anything you want to share with them or a message or, yeah, any insights for them?
2: Worms love animal manure. Um, And so if you have goats or um, goats, sheep, cows, pigs, horses llamas, alpacas, (laughs) a number of animals. You can feed that manure to the worms, but the only manure you have to keep away from worms is chicken manure. So chicken, any kind of poultry manure should not be fed to worms. It's too high in ammonia and it will kill the worms.
0: The Worm Farmers' Handbook is a brilliant compendium of case studies, technical information and learnings from many years of vermicomposting. A practical guide into the why and the how behind worm farming at different scales that draws on the experience of others around the world. Rhonda's book couldn't be more timely. It feels like a transformative moment in the world of composting, as more people give attention to soil biology and realise that compost is not just about dead organic matter. It's about applying a living matrix. And that's exactly what these wonderful worms create. This Farmerama podcast is brought to you by Chelsea Green Publishing, the leading publisher of books on sustainable food and farming, including The Worm Farmers Handbook by Rhonda Sherman. Contact your local bookshop, favourite online retailer, or go to chelseagreen.com for more details. This show was made by Abby Rose, me, Joe Barrett, and Hannah Sutherland. Community support is by Annie Landless, Olivia Oldham, and Eliza Jenkins. Our theme music is by Owen Barrett.